Well, we're going to be doing something very, very different this morning. Um, we're not having a, a conventional sermon or a devotional talk, but we're having a lecture. I think that's a first. And it's a lecture on the, the Protestant Reformation. And that's, uh, how radical is that? Uh, this week, as many of you know, uh, it marked the 500th anniversary of the day that an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther uh, challenged the medieval Catholic Church to which he belonged over its wrong beliefs and ungodly practices. And the result of that challenge was the, uh, a movement that changed the face and direction of the church throughout the world and actually changed much of Western society as well. And I believe that the Reformation has had a greater impact upon the life of the church than anything else in the 2000 history of the church. And I think that we owe much to Martin Luther and to the early reformers. They were far from perfect. And you read the history books and you will see that. But they were God's people at a crucial time in history. And this morning, who better to talk to us about this than Richard? Um, Dr. Richard Massey was, for those of you that don't know Richard, um, he was for a number of years uh, the, the principal of the uh, Birmingham Christian College and um, it's been a pleasure to have uh, Richard and Christine as part of this church family now for about a dozen years or so. And uh, Richard is a New Testament scholar and also church historian and uh, we're going to employ this morning his knowledge and his skills and I trust his words that will both inspire us and inform us. I'm sure they will. Just one or two things before I, I begin uh, talking. The, the, I'd like to say again, as I think I did uh, some year or so ago when I was preaching here, how much we've appreciated your prayer and care for Christine, my wife, That's, and, and we do appreciate that. And also for our granddaughter Charlotte, who has special needs, uh, Charlotte's birthday is today. She's 16. And uh, our first introduction to the church about 12 years ago here was when uh, our daughter found that, that the nursery here would be very happy to accept Charlotte in the nursery for a while. Uh, and that, that sort of brought us into the church, if you like, when we, we were moving out of Birmingham and coming, obviously, to to live in Tamworth near to our daughter to give support there. So that, that's just a little bit of, of, of background in a sense. And uh, please continue to pray for Charlotte as she got to transition now in terms of her care from being a child to being a young adult. And that's always a very challenging time, as you can imagine. Uh, I like to say as well, before I, I begin preaching or whatever term is used, that everything I say won't just be helpful to all of you all the time, so don't worry about that. Uh, I often find that the work of the Holy Spirit is that as we're listening, there's just something that leaps out of what's being said. Uh, it may not be very much, it may be in the beginning, maybe in the end, and such forth. And, and that's for you then, isn't it? So it's not a, a question of everything I say, but rather uh, just being open in our, in our lives, in our hearts, if you like, to what God may say to us. Um, I'm going to actually begin by giving the text that Martin Luther felt was almost the, the, the primary text for the Reformation, 
Uh, and it, it is, of course, well known to us. It's from Paul's letter to the Romans. And it, it's this. It's verses chapter, sorry, chapter 1 and verse 16. And this is what really began to work in Luther's life, as we shall see. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith first to last, just as it is written in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. And uh, I think we all believe that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so I trust that uh, those verses will form a, a kind of text, if you like, not, not so much for a lecture. Uh, I'm fully aware that, that this is a, a service, really, in the church. It's not a, a lecture room. And in that sense, we're here to praise God. We're here to pray uh, we're here to hear about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to be taught. We're here to have fellowship. So in that sense, I don't want it to be too heavy-handed. There, there'll be parts of it that may just be more for some than for others. But we really look to God to bless us uh, in, in the sense of uh, remembering the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation back in 1517. Uh, I wasn't there then, of course, but um, uh, back in 1983, um, I, I was part of the Birmingham Bible Institute. I was director of studies, uh, and uh, I'd been teaching quite a bit of church history. And I suddenly realized in 1983 that that was the uh, 500th anniversary of Luther's birth. He was born back in 1483. And uh, you will see as the uh, slides on the uh, overhead come up that uh, that is the, the, the time, 1483. Um, I was interested, I was watching on television last night, the, um, there was a repeating on uh, Channel 4, uh, the story of Richard III, uh, you know, the king that was found under the car park in Leicester. Um, <laughs> And uh, it featured, of course, Dominic Smee quite a bit, which was very interesting. Dominic, as you know, and his mum and family have links with the church. I don't know whether they're here this morning looking round. But um, it, it was interesting that uh, at the same time that Luther was born, um, Luther was born back in 1483, that was when Richard III actually came to the throne. Uh, and the, the Wars of the Roses took on a new dimension. And two years after that was the famous Battle of Bosworth, uh, and that's when the Tudor kings emerged. And it was the Tudor kings in this country that were more accepting of the Protestant Reformation. So we're going to sort of try initially, and what I want to say first of all, is to sort of see what life was like when Luther was born, as his, his childhood and early years. So you can see there that the way we're going is uh, to look first of all at Luther's world and then to go on later to talk about his spiritual journey and then the 95 Theses. But most important, uh, I want to really try and raise the issue of what's Luther's legacy for today? 
I mean, what's the point of having this kind of, of, of service, if you like? What's the point of me talking about Martin Luther? And there is actually quite a legacy that's very relevant for today, and I hope that towards the end of what I'm saying that will emerge. So let's just first of all have a look at Luther's world, um, the, the kind of world that he was uh, he, uh, was born into. And you will see from the overhead now, now that Luther's world was one of very much a lot of change. Um, the European world was beginning to get interested in learning again. It was called the Renaissance, the rebirth of learning. So there were lots of interest in art and, uh, and things like that. It was the world, of course, of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and all that kind of thing, you know. And they were looking back to kind of understand the earlier periods of the classical world and the dark ages that had dominated Europe was beginning to, to disappear. It was the the time of learning uh, uh, and uh, what was called then humanism, but in fact is really just the concept of being interested in education and learning. Um, I know some of you I hear from uh, Holland or Dutch background. Well, that was Erasmus of Rotterdam who was at the, the center of that. He was a fellow who really started to say, well, we, we should really have allow people to have freedom of speech, freedom of, of conscience and he was a great scholar and he even started to look at the the Bible or the New Testament not just in its Latin form which was the language of the day but uh, also in its early Greek form which gave a better insight into the meaning of the New Testament later on was to be very important for Luther it was also a, a time of nationalism as well that the European countries um, the names are very similar today, but the systems of government were very, very different. The European countries were, were obviously ruled by kings or by uh, uh, princes, etc. Uh, but they were also very much dominated by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Pope. Uh, and there was that kind of duality of government going on. And many of the countries were beginning to say, look, we want more individual freedom. I mean, it, it, it's almost a little bit like what's going on today, isn't it, in a sense? In our, I won't get involved with that. But, you know, um, the, 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 there was sort of like similarities. You, you, you have these, the, these princes and these kings saying, OK, it's all very well being told what to do from Rome, but what, what can we do? And, of course, Rome was, you know, laying heavy taxes on them in in various ways. So nationalism was a, something on the rise. Um, exploration was beginning to take place. You know, people were traveling by ship now to parts of the world that they had uh, uh, never really understood, Christopher Columbus and all. So there was a sort of an opening of the eyes uh, uh, going on. And uh, in that sense, it, it was a time very much of uh, a desire, perhaps, to, to be prepared to do something different if, if necessary. Um, when you look at the church into which Luther was born, and Luther was a, a practicing Catholic, and he was, even during the rest of his life, he was quite conservative. He continued right up until his death to wear his monk's habit. You know, he wasn't sort of saying, I've come to destroy the church. He wanted really to change it. And I think that's an important point today that we're not scoring points off an earlier generation of the Christian church in Europe. We're simply saying there are occasions when 
uh, reform when change is necessary. And this was particularly so at the time when Martin Luther was growing up as a young man, because the church really was, well, I suppose you could say quite corrupt. In many ways, um, there was the, because the church had such a political involvement, the church was becoming extremely wealthy. And um, the church was in many ways corrupted by the fact that anyone who held an, a high office in church really rapidly uh, uh, gained from that in a, a wealth sense, in a financial sense. Sometimes you had situations where um, in order for a family to gain that, that wealth, when a, a bishop's post became vacant, a, a boy of perhaps nine or ten would be made the bishop so that the parents could then control the wealth that was coming in through the advantage that that was. Well, that, you can see, is obviously not a, a, a good thing. There was a lot of superstition around. Um, it was a superstitious age. In some ways, ours is still a little bit of a superstitious age. Uh, Halloween seems to be very popular, doesn't it, and things like that. But um, the, the, when Luther eventually came to nail those theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, that castle church actually had the largest collection of relics anywhere in Europe. It had over 5,000 different bits and pieces that were being claimed that gave you kind of special blessing if you touched them or prayed to the saints behind them. Some of them were just quite fantastic bits and pieces of the clothing that the mother of Jesus had worn, um, hairs from off a donkey which Jesus had ridden on, um, pieces of wood which were part of the, the cross, obviously, but also part of perhaps the cradle that Jesus had been in. Uh, these, this kind of superstition was quite widespread in the church, and it was often linked to what was really the very unbiblical concept of what happens to us after death. Not so much the, 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 the long-distant view of hell and heaven in that way, but purgatory. Now, purgatory was a view that was held by the church in Luther's time that simply said that when you die, you don't go straight to heaven because you're not worthy. You've got to spend a time of being purged or you've got to spend time of being prepared. And that, that's got to be done by lots of prayers on your behalf or on behalf of the person who's died, money being paid to gain different things. And, and it really was just a, a wrong system. And so the, the concept of uh, relics were pretty common because if you could touch a relic and pray for a relative in purgatory, then a number of years would be taken off the length of time they may spend there. You can see the, the way that that was sad, really and a, a corruption. It was an unbiblical view. And Luther, of course, eventually spoke out very much against it. The idea that you could get some sort of indulgence in order to help someone who had died, uh, in order that they might go through purgatory uh, so much more quickly. And as has been said, uh, certainly it was interesting on the uh, video that the children saw, that the one thing that really enabled all of these changes to really take off was purely a practical thing. It was the invention of printing. Uh, so it's a little bit like in our own age. It's been social media 
uh, and the invention, of course, of, of the computer and things like that has now meant that, in a sense, the world is, lies at the feet, doesn't it, of publicists, without any tweeting and, and, and such forth. So printing uh, was a means of actually spreading ideas, pamphlets, documents, etc., in the language of the, the you know, the people who were going to read it. So Latin was the academic language, but in, in where Luther was, German was, was being spoken. Here in the UK, of course, uh, the early form of, of English. And so it was important for ideas to be spread in that way. So here we have Luther then, born into that particular very exciting and changing kind of uh, context. Um, so what caused him to become... Uh, a monk and to do what he did. So let's move on to that second point then, which is about Luther's personal spiritual journey. And, and this is fairly common, I think, uh, in what we know about it. Uh, his family, uh, an interesting family, his father had been a farmer, but his farmer was a very kind of energetic, entrepreneurial kind of guy that wanted to, you know, do things for himself. So he decided to sell the farm. And what was going on in the area where Luther was born, Eisleben, about 50 miles to the west of Berlin, where there are lots of, of small uh, non-ferrous mines being set up, copper mining. And it, they weren't the sort of shaft mines that we're familiar with in coal mining today. They were a little bit more like what those of you who know about coal mining used to call drift mining, where they just tunnel into the side of a hill make a sort of a cave, and, and then you could get the non-ferrous metals out. And Luther's father eventually owned about six of those little mines, and he was becoming quite prosperous. He also set up, his father, a, a little uh, sort of uh, copper smelting uh, foundry so that, that the copper could be used. It was quite a... He, Luther was by no means a peasant, that's what I'm trying to say. His father was... I suppose today we would say a kind of middle-class businessman. And in that sense, that really was something that began to shape uh, Luther. Luther uh, became a law student. Luther was a very gifted person, naturally, very academically capable. He was very musically gifted. He could sing, he could play instruments. But um, his father wanted him to be a lawyer because law was now one of the in subjects, as it were. If you knew law, you could make your way forward and you could challenge this and that. And in business, to have a lawyer in the family was a great thing. So his father said, look, off you go to Erfurt University and come out as a lawyer and you'll be part of, of the family business and, and life will be good. And it was on his way uh, during those courses. He was working as a student. He had gone with another student to visit another area and we saw it on the children's video, uh, riding back uh, towards uh, uh, Erfurt, uh, a violent thunderstorm took place. And the, the, the young man that Luther was with was actually struck by the lightning and killed at Luther's side. And Luther himself was terrified by it, as you can imagine. It was one of those very violent thunderstorms. And um, what simply happened was that Luther almost in the superstition of his day, he cried out to the only saint he knew. It was St. Anne. She actually was, was the mother of the Virgin Mary and a very popular saint. Uh, he cried out, St. Anne, save me, and I will serve you. In other words, he was really saying he would uh, become a monk 
rather than a lawyer. And when he had made that cry and uh, the thunderstorm had gone over and he had got back to his family home, he said to his father, much to his father's opposition, he said, look, I'm not going to study law anymore. I'm going to join a monastery and to serve God. So he joined the Augustinian monastery at um, uh, Erfurt, and that was the beginning of, if you like, his spirituality. He was, he was very, what shall we say, a sensitive spiritual person. He, he, the, the, the very fact that he cried out to, to the saint and then said, I'll serve you if, if my life... He, his life thereafter was always, uh, how can I do more to please God? How can I be saved? He, was, he almost felt that he got even though he wasn't a particularly bad person, he always felt so many sins. How, how can I do more penance in order to be forgiven? And uh, it's interesting, on one occasion he went to his father confessor and said, you know, he almost to go daily to see his father confessor, hear, hear, will you hear my, my confession? And the, the father confessor said to him, I want to look, go away, do some real sins, and then... <laughs> Come back and we'll talk about what penance you need to pay to have them forgiven. So that, was a, that gives you some insight, I think, uh, to, to Luther. He did everything he could. Uh, he was a very able and gifted person he, he, when he was a monk. And his Augustinian monastery, they said, look, we'd like you to go and represent us at Rome. So he went off on a, a journey to Rome to be the official representative of, of his monastery. And he thought, this is great. Once I get there, I, I really can get rid of everything that's troubling me. And so when he got to Rome, he was very disappointed. Um, I think in one place, and I tried to remember which was the best way around to put this, he said, uh, I went to Rome expecting, uh, uh, expecting garlic, and when I got there, I found onions. So I presume garlic was a, the best thing to have. But, you know, what he found was that it really, that the, the whole of Rome typified this kind of corruption that was there. Um, there was in Rome uh, some sacred pavement, the, the Scala Sancta, which supposed to be the, 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 the actual paving stones from where Jesus walked when he went up before Pilate. That, this was another sort of relic, and it, it had formed a sort of staircase, a sacred staircase, and Luther... Uh, knew that if he went up that staircase, as people used to do to pay penance, when he got to the top, he would really be forgiven. And there were about 28 steps. And instead of just walking up and then praying at the top, he went up on his knees, step by step. And on every step, he said some form of penitential confession, either saying the Lord's Prayer or the Hail Mary. When he got to the top, he found that he felt no different. And so he was really struggling all the while with this business of what does the righteousness of God mean? And he felt that the righteousness of God at the moment, as he understood it, meant a God who was... And in fact, he uses this term, that God was a kind of like an executioner. God was just wanting to get rid of people who were bad and did wrong things. Now, could you imagine having a view of God as a, an executioner? And so... When he got back uh, to, to, his, uh, to, to uh, 
the, the, the monastery where he was, he found that uh, they were recommending him there to go and become a lecturer at Wittenberg University. Now, part of the renaissance that we've talked about, the changing world, was every city that felt itself to have a status had to have a university. That's not unlike been going on today in some ways. We have lots of new universities have all sprung up, haven't they, over the years. Um, and Luther was asked if he would go to Wittenberg and become one of the lecturers in there of theology and, of course, biblical studies, etc. Now, although he was a monk and he'd been trained in a primary sense, he'd never really done any serious theological training. He'd never studied the Bible too closely, but he was, he was fairly adept at most things. So when he got to uh, Wittenberg University, he was given the task of teaching the, the different books of the Bible to the students there. And the, the primary one that began to catch his attention was, in fact, the, when he began to study Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, it's often said, if you want to understand something, try and teach it. And if you can teach it, you will understand it. And there's nothing. And those of you who are teachers, and I've had this experience myself, you know, you, you, if you don't know your subject, you soon are embarrassed by it, aren't you? And you don't fully grasp it. And you only need one student who's rather astute, who asks you the awkward question, and you wish they'd go out of the room. Um, <laughs> So please don't do that this morning. But, but you know, it, that, that happens. And, but, but Luther immersed himself in, in studying Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, and that is, of course, when he began to look uh, at what this issue of Romans 1, that I read to you, the righteousness of God. What is it really? And he began, as he went through the letter to the Romans, to realize that the righteousness of God was not God wanting to punish, but God wanting to show love and grace uh, towards sinners. Not based just on a carefree, well, let's forgive everyone, but because of Jesus. Uh, and Jesus is at the center of the gospel, isn't he? And Jesus is at the center of grace. Uh, and whatever we, we think about uh, the, the term grace, it has to somewhere have the concept that it's grace shown in God's love uh, towards the unworthy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, etc. And that, Luther began to think, this is it. And one day he was studying in his little turret uh, uh, room uh, in a tower and uh, in, in the university, and uh, he suddenly was looking again at those verses that I read to you as the text, you know, about... Uh, a righteousness from God which is by faith from first to last. And it suddenly dawned upon him. It wasn't about how much he could do. It was about what God was offering. The law says do. The gospel says done. And of course, Luther, looking at that, said, and this is not about how do we try and grasp it. It's simply how do we receive it? It's by faith. And so uh, he made the famous statement that you may have heard before. He says, when I realized this, he says, I felt myself absolutely born again. The gates of paradise had been flung open and I had entered. And there and then the whole of scripture took on another look for me. Now that, that's a real 
experience, isn't it? That, that was kind of the end of it, not the end of his spiritual journey, but the kind of real uh, consolidating of it in Christ. And so this is where the whole idea that is often spoken of in relation to Luther and the Reformation, justification by faith, comes into being. So Luther often said, there are three things that I really want to stress. One is grace, uh, the other is faith, and the other is the word of God. So those three things are absolutely essential for our understanding of the Christian faith. Grace alone, faith alone, the word of God alone. And so that was a turning point. And so that had happened round about the year 1515. And just a couple of years later, Luther, who by now was really getting to grips with all what this meant for the church, felt that he had got to, well, I don't think he thought I must begin a reformation. or a pro He thought I must challenge the, 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 the thinking people uh, and he meant by that people possibly who were working with him in the university and leaders in the church. I must challenge them to try and grasp what this idea of purgatory means and how false it is. And this idea that you can buy uh, indulgences or you can buy forgiveness, etc. And so he, he, it's a good job it wasn't a sermon, he prepared 95 points. Um, <laughs> And you see, it wasn't meant to be a, a sermon or a lecture. Uh, it was meant to be just a starting point for discussion. Let's think about these things. So he, he went through his whole thinking and laid out something like 95 uh, theses or arguments, as it were, uh, in, in order for people to think about. And uh, in the early days, it was really the more... Uh, uh, academic people who began to, to try to understand what Luther was saying. It didn't become a popular movement immediately. And so Luther, following 1517, found himself hauled before a number of uh, courts and uh, challenges to what he was saying. And he, he had to go and defend his position. But the particular one that is most remembered um, is indeed where he was asked to appear uh, before the council at the, in the German city of Forms, or Worms, as it is sometimes amusingly noticed by youngsters. Um, the Diet of Forms in 1521 was when he appeared, actually, before um, the emperor, um, Charles V. Uh, Europe at that time uh, had a kind of political linking together of countries. They all had their own separate uh, princes and rulers and kings, but there was one overall. It was in the days of what was known as the Habsburg Empire. And Charles V was the emperor, and he uh, was there. It was a grand court, and Luther appeared, and he, the Pope had already written Luther off and excommunicated him a year or so before. But um, Luther was asked by the emperor, Charles V, who tried to be very fair with him, said, why don't you just say sorry and give it all up, you know? He was a kind of uh, emperor that just wanted to keep the peace. And that's where Luther uh, made his famous statement again that's often quoted. He spoke about, he says, well, I'm a, I'm a prisoner to the word of God. I'm a captive to my conscience. Here I stand, he said. I can do no other, so help me God. And, and that phrase, here I stand, is almost like the, the slogan, isn't it, of 
of Luther's uh, Reformation. I haven't been to Worms, I've gone by it on the train, but if you, if you go to Worms, you'll see there outside the courtrooms or the, the public rooms where Luther was in fact hauled before the emperor. There's a, a not a statue of Luther, there's a, a, an actual pair of giant boots <laughs> made out of metal. Uh, and, and underneath, uh, written uh, in, in German, is, is the Here I Stand, you see, Luther's stand, as it were. Uh, and after that, of course, uh, the emperor said to him, well, that's it, you, you know, you, you better get away. And he went, and that's when he was arrested by friends on his way back. And uh, he was taken to a, a secure castle uh, in Wartburg, and um, there he spent about six months and was able to do quite a bit of thinking through and writing and things of that nature. So that's where the Reformation really begins in that sense. But then it, it continues on in when he gets back after that time of, well, it wasn't a true captivity, but it was being looked after by his friends and kept secure. He goes and forms his home in Wittenberg the elector, the man in charge, if you like, the prince in charge of the area that Luther lived in, in Saxony, uh, he was called Frederick the Wise, he said, look, uh, I don't want to oppose you, in fact, I'd like to support you. And he allowed him to take over a, a monastery in Wittenberg that was now empty because the monks were all leaving it. For, and it had got about 20 or 30 rooms in it. It became a sort of giant hostel. Luther lived in it, and there he was able to receive all kinds of people to, who came and wanted to ask him questions and, and talk about what was going on. And he had time to write pamphlets that were now being circulated in German, explaining his views, uh, etc. And so that, that time was very significant for him, and he wrote a number of we would call today church liturgies. The Lutheran church kept a kind of, well, it's very similar to the Anglican church today. It still believed in bishops and, and, and priests and, and, and clergy in, the, in a sort of threefold sense. Uh, there were others who wanted a more Presbyterian system where it was just the elders running the church, and that happened in parts of Switzerland. And then there were some who wanted just what often became known as the Reformed churches, where simply it was like Congregationalism is today, the United Reformed churches, where the congregation have a bit much bigger say. Uh, and Luther was involved in all the discussions about that. And uh, he used to invite these people to have meals and things like that together. And it was fascinating because... Um, it was there that he met his future wife because he actually uh, had to have a housekeeper uh, with all the, because it was not only talking with people, but it, they came and stayed, they were fed, they were looked after. And um, the woman that became his housekeeper, uh, Catherine von Bora, very interesting person, she'd been a nun. There's a lovely story told about them. That she and about half a dozen of her fellow nuns in, in a convent heard about Luther, uh, this is well before she, she went over to, to live in Wittenberg, and uh, they began to read some of Luther, secretly read some of Luther's writings. And about eight of them decided, we will escape from the convent secretly, we will go, and we will go to Wittenberg, and we will live there. And they got in touch with Luther and said, how can we do it? Luther said, well, I know the man who delivers dried fish. 
to, to the, the convent. He comes with big barrels on a cart full of uh, salted fish, and he said then he takes them away empty, and he goes on his rounds, etc. So he arranged with that man, who was one of Luther's supporters, that when he got to the convent on a certain day, about eight nuns will have dressed in more formal clothing, and each one was asked to get into a barrel, which had just uh, had salted fish in it. You can imagine what it was like, and the man would take them out so far away, and then there would be, after a while, where they were safe to come out, they would be met and taken on their final journey uh, to, to, to Wittenberg. Um, when they did that, they got the nickname, they were Luther's Little Herrings. Um, and one of them, Katie von Vora, was really very, very gifted, very capable. She often, sadly, in those days, families, if, if there wasn't a a husband or, or, or to, to be married off the, to the daughter, etc. they would say, look, you, you've got to join a convent. And she, she had joined the convent. And she, although she was devout, she really wanted to escape from it. And so when she got back, or when she got to Wittenberg, and Luther and his friends were really looking for people to do different kinds of work, uh, she was asked to be Luther's housekeeper. And about five or six years after that, Luther, who didn't seem as though he was too busy to get married, he was in his late 30s, early 40s, but um, he, he, he married Katie von Bora. And uh, it was a very successful marriage, and she managed all the house. She was very gifted at that. And uh, just for those of you who like pets, Luther had a dog. Um, and it was a collie dog of some kind, a sheep dog. And it, um, it, 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 its, it's name, Telpul, could be translated something like mischief maker or uh, it could be joker or scoundrel. And when Luther had all these grand meetings in his house with uh, his wife having prepared food, the dog would come creeping in and sort of create a bit of a confusion. And uh, Luther was heard to say on one occasion, he was very fond of his dog, he said, when the resurrection happened, Luther believed that dogs would be in heaven. I'm not sure whether that's so. But anyway, he said that. He said, uh, my dog will have a golden tail. <laughs> so there's a sort of interesting side to Luther. He wasn't just a sort of dull kind of uh, reformer. He, and he had children, and he was a family man and, and such forth. So... Uh, time is, is going on now. So when we come to the final part of Luther's legacy, uh, I just need to say something briefly about this. Uh, it's interesting when Luther died, by the way, uh, his, amongst his final words were things like, I did nothing, the word of God did it all. And apparently as he lay dying, uh, he, he began to recite John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So um, they're very interesting. But what about Luther today? Well, the interesting thing is that Luther has continued to influence people uh, quite considerably, uh, as it were. And one of the most notable, and I've put it down in full on the uh, overhead, as you can see, um, he caused people to think about the way that justification by faith is about a personal commitment. It's about a, an individual wanting... You, you can't have faith from someone else if you're 
parents have got faith, it, that doesn't become your faith. I, I know it can help. Or you can't have the faith of a church that's there. It's got to be you. It's got to be us, hasn't it, that has a faith that trusts in God in that way. And um, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, living a couple of hundred years after uh, Luther, uh, had become an Anglican clergyman, but he had never really found that individual faith, as it were. It had never come to him. He'd even been a missionary, Wesley, in uh, North America. And uh, he had gone with his brother Charles, and uh, he wrote in his diary, because he was a great diarist, he said, I went to America to convert the Indian, but oh, who will convert me? Now, that's an Anglican clergyman saying that. Uh, it wasn't just a, someone on the outside. But then uh, Wesley had some friends who were Moravians. They were part of the sort of radical reformation that had taken place. And he was persuaded by them to go to a midweek meeting in London in Aldersgate. And this is what he writes in his diary. And I think many of you will have heard this before. On May the 24th, 1738, I went very unwillingly to a society meeting in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. So someone was reading out in English from Luther's commentary on Romans the, the introductory preface that Luther had written. And about a quarter to nine in the evening... Well, this man was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now that was... Luther's equivalent, to, sorry, uh, Wesley's equivalent of the Tower experience. It, it came home personally to him. And thereafter, he actually began to become a field preacher. He went out preaching the gospel. And, uh, of course, the Methodist movement started in that way. But um, others have followed in a similar suit to uh, John Wesley. For example, William Carey at the... Uh, Towards the end of, of Wesley's life, Carey was a Baptist and he went out as a missionary to India. And um, when uh, Carey was first wanting to do this, he'd been encouraged by John Wesley, but when Carey talked with other Baptist leaders uh, at a public leaders' meeting, one of them, uh, an elder statesman, stood up and said to Carey, uh, sit down, young man, you're an enthusiast. When God wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. Uh, and uh, uh, he even went to add, very strangely, and, and before that can happen, that the missionaries must have a Pentecostal gift of tongues for everyone to be able to understand them. That was said back in the 1790s. And, of course, Luther, uh, the uh, reply there that was given uh, by Carey was, as you know, if we uh, expect great things from God, then we must attempt great things for God. So Luther's legacy really comes down through people like John Wesley saying we must be evangelists, we must be missionaries, we must preach the gospel, and it must be about personal faith, not collective faith. Uh, and of course that's been followed up, as you know, by some very fine evangelists by D.L. Moody and, of course, Billy Graham. 
and people of that nature have really said, look, you know, you must be born again. You must be, not your family, not the church. You must be born again. But I want to end, and time has gone, and I'm sorry if it's gone on a little longer than, than you thought, but the lasting legacy that I think is perhaps very important still today is Luther believed that the priesthood was not about just one or two people being leaders, priests. There was what he called the priesthood of all believers. Whatever sex they were, men, women, there was a place for serving God. Whatever age they were, young or old, there's a place for serving God. Um, being a priest, although I'm, I don't really like that term myself as a description of a church leader, we tend to use terms like pastor and elders and such forth, but a priest's job is to offer worship to God. And so the priesthood of all believers, which Luther believed in, meant that all of us, whatever, whether we're men, women, whether we're young, whether we're old, all of us in some way can offer some kind of worship to God through the things we do. And that doesn't mean we all become pastors and, 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 and such forth. It, it, it's, it's much more widespread. I was very encouraged last week to hear, and we've heard a little more of it today from those interviewed, uh, what's going on in this church about the priesthood of all believers. In a sense, you've got um, opportunities are there to do things, and people are not necessarily clergy or leaders in any... They just come and they say, uh, as we've heard today, I would like to start a service for uh, children with special needs, and uh, I would like to be getting a group of people together to be part of the rough sleepers. I mean, that is the priesthood of all believers. And in many ways, Luther's legacy in that direction is a wonderful one because whilst it's interesting to hear about Luther, uh, and you know, you might think, oh, well, that was Luther, and, but, but not for me. Actually, it is. We, there is a sense in which the words of Jesus, that we are the light of the world, we are the salt of the earth, let men see, as it were, your righteousness by the, the good things you do, doing good, not to save you, but as a demonstration you are saved, is a very important legacy that Luther left. So all of us today can go from here thinking, yes, um, Luther has challenged us to think, don't just be spectators, but be participators, the priesthood of all believers. So I think we'll end there. We're going to sing a, a hymn that... Charles Wesley wrote that is often regarded as the hymn that summarizes uh, the, the Reformation. And can it be that I should gain? It has that wonderful verse in it. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. And then the verse which has my chains fell off, my heart was free. So I think we'll end at that and uh, we'll sing this hymn and we'll take into account the concepts of the priesthood of all believers. <laughs>